Hey everyone, welcome back to Lee 2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B. I'm your host and friendly neighborhood growth marketer, Lee Moskowitz. Coming to the mic today, we have Nick Lafferty. Nick's career history includes marketing success at fast-growing startups like Loom. In May 2023, he bid farewell to the 9-to-5 grind, launching a growth marketing consultant practice that has skyrocketed to over 30k a month in just six months. In this episode, we're going to be spilling the details, but Nick actually is always spilling the deets in his Early Exit Club newsletter, which shares monthly insights on earnings, client strategies, and pricing hacks. Join Nick's revolution, where growth means independence, and marketers chart their path to success in this episode of Lee to Be. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lee. Thank you so much for having me on today. Thank you so much for coming on. I am so excited to talk to you. We were DMing and, you know, I did ask you to come on, but you were also like, you know what? The stuff we're talking about would, would be perfect for everybody to hear. So definitely have a ton of questions for you. But I always like to start and, and ask when I meet other growth marketers, because you ask one person one thing and they, they will say something else. When I say growth marketing, what does that mean to you? What's, what's your yeah. definition? My definition of a growth marketer is someone who is really bad at saying no to things. Like, <laughs> do, you, do you need someone who can do paid marketing? I can do that. Do you need SEO? Do you need affiliates? Do you need influencers? Do you need email marketing copy? Like, that's kind of what, what growth marketing is. And it's really interesting because when you post a growth marketing role, it could be for uh, like PLG, self-serve company. It could be for demand gen. It could mm-hmm. be a crossover of, of those things. And so it's so dependent on, on the company, but like ultimately it's someone who is scrappy and will do whatever it takes to help the company grow. So where do you consider the difference between demand gen and growth marketing? Because yeah. I see a lot of people use them interchangeably. Often they, they kind of are, but there is that difference. So where, where do you draw that line? I think really a good demand gen person is looking kind of full funnel across the whole like lead lifecycle, like someone who is comfortable in HubSpot, in Salesforce, not just generating leads, but like understanding how they're going through, if they're sitting for sales calls with the AEs, if they're kind of like moving all the way to like a closed one opportunity and like growth marketers really can, in my experience, can be more scrappy top of funnel person that then hands off signups or leads or whoever, but is like very focused top of funnel instead. Yeah. So, I mean, I call myself a a get shit done marketer. I also use the term T-shaped growth marketer. Do you say that or do you not like that one? I I, I like the term T-shaped marketer only because a manager I respect really likes, really likes that phrase too. So I've adopted it from him. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, on the basis it's saying like, you're really good at tons of things. And then you have like a specialty in like a few areas. Like I say, like digital marketing, like literally I've done it. I can do it. My main specialties, and I would say it's, you know, HubSpot, paid media, organic social, uh, B2B marketing, and, you know, break it down from there, stuff like that. That's really useful when or if you ever want to start consulting or doing like a freelancing practice. Like the stuff I advise people of like, if they want to start consulting, I tell them number one is figure out what your best skill set is and really narrow in your offer. Like I joked earlier that like, a, you know, a growth marketer is someone who can't say no, like I can do affiliates, I can do SEO. And I purposely now don't do those in my consulting practice because I want to narrow in on what I am really great at and what I, I know I can provide value for each client. 
client that I, I serve. Take us back to May 2023, or which probably uh, January, February, maybe even in 2022. When did you start thinking about going out on your own completely? Was there like an aha moment? Was it gradual? Like what really inspired all of that? It was definitely gradual at first and then very sudden at the end. Uh, and so I was thinking about going out on my own exactly a year ago. So this time I was transitioning out of Loom. I was in the final negotiation phases with another startup that I was going to work at. And when they were making an offer to me, I was like, look, like the choice isn't between you and another company. It's between you and me starting my own business and doing my own consulting practice. And I ended up joining another startup temporarily. Great company, tons of runway, great founders. But ultimately, I had a couple meetings with uh, people there where I just got burned out of the corporate life and meetings and processes and all of that stuff. It wasn't them. Like I told them like the classic breakup story of it's not you, it's me kind of thing. And so it, it had been percolating for, I would say like six months before I actually quit. And then it just took like one, like one bad day or one day where I was fed up with whatever was going on at work. Where I was like, screw this, like I'm, I'm out basically. And by then I had built up some advising income I had some affiliate income too, so I wasn't starting from zero, which not everyone has that opportunity to if you're if you're laid off or anything like that. But it's also why I'm such a big advocate of diversifying your income stream because you never know when that stuff is, is going to happen. So did you start more with affiliate or consulting? It was affiliate at, at first. Like my first job, I was an affiliate manager for a company. It's kind of like HomeAdvisor or Angie's List. Like they match homeowners and contractors. And I actually my thought it was Angel Angie's List, but then I saw it was very close. It wasn't very Angie's, close. It was yeah, Angel. it used to be called yeah. Modernize. Yeah. So I was cutting checks for affiliates for like 50K a month or 200K a month. And I was like, I want this. Like who wouldn't well, want Well, actually, let's define affiliate marketing for our listeners who don't know, if you could. Got it. Yeah. So affiliate marketing to me is where you you help sell another product and you get a cut of that. So it could be flat dollar amount. It could be for SaaS, it's typically a like recurring percent. Like you get 30% of the subscription price that you, of the customer you referred over to them. And in this case, it was like purely pay-per lead model where we pay affiliates 10 bucks a lead, 20 bucks a lead, whatever. And like me cutting them checks for 200K a month, I was like, whoa, I want this too. And so that motivated me to start my website, to start blogging, to rank in SEO and fill some of those pages with affiliate links. And so that was my first passive income stream. And I still have some of that going on today too. What was your consulting retainers like? Was it you being the consultant saying, go do this? Were you in the weeds of things? Was it all over the place? Yeah, a lot of my first ones were more what I call advising and not necessarily operational consulting where like I would advise startups of growth marketing strategy. So I'd work with founders or heads of marketing and just kind of put them on the right path and steer them away from the wrong path. And that can be a fairly low time commitment and something that a lot of people can do right now who have some career experience. Like there's tons of startups out there founded by 
engineers, very technical people who just don't get marketing the same way you, I, or your listeners would, who are truly desperate for a marketing person to come like tell them what to do or like how to do SEO or how to not screw up their website when they do a redesign or something. And so that was the beginning of my consulting practice was just advising and telling other people what to do. And then eventually I would layer on running operations for them, which is typically for me running Google ads, LinkedIn ads Mm -hmm. for B2B SaaS startups, like series A to series C is kind of my, my sweet spot, but it's like me doing the thing. Like I'm optimizing the bids, I'm launching campaigns, I'm doing all of that stuff and not just telling them what to do. Cool. So were you like, were you applying to part-time job, freelance jobs? Were people coming to you through through it? How did you get your first few clients? Yeah. A, a lot of people ask me this question. And I think the two hardest things about starting consulting or starting your own kind of like side business is figuring out what your offer is of like, what are you really good at, which we've talked about. And then how do you find your first client? And the the way I have found clients, and especially in the beginning, it was word of mouth and people found me. Like I wrote a blog post about spending $6 million on hacker on Google ads. Uh, someone posted it to Hacker News, it hit the front page. And like suddenly overnight, my inbox was just full of questions and consulting opportunities. And like that wouldn't have happened had I not put myself out there, wrote about my experience and like just kind of did did that whole thing. But what I tell people of how to find clients is I think the best way is to leverage your existing network, go back to your former managers, your former bosses, your former colleagues, and just say, hey, like I'm doing this now. I'm helping companies with LinkedIn ads or growth marketing or marketing ops or whatever. Do you need help? Do you know anyone who needs help? And kind of like exhaust your network first while also doing what you're doing is consistently making content on LinkedIn, on social media, and putting yourself out there so you're top of mind for anyone else who you might not have have reached out to. And then once you get one client, it can really waterfall from there of you ideally can do like some kind of case study with them of like, hey, I have this client. I drove this success with them. You post about that too and like leverage that to get clients two and three. And like that's probably the smoothest path to a consulting mm-hmm. practice. Yeah, so I think I think with a lot of people that that I talk to, because um, you know I, I talk to a lot of other people who are in the same boat as me, open to work. It's you know we can get some clients pretty easily, free, freelance one two stuff like that. But there's like, well, one is it is it really worth it to do the work for them if it's going to be like the same amount as unemployment? Or two, it's it's like, hey, you know, I'm so confident I can get you know one two three good clients, but that's not going to even get close to getting to my salary so or a desired salary if we're recreating yeah i i think it's all in how you price yourself like it it took me three months or four months of working for myself to reach my my prior salary and to do that it was fifteen thousand dollars a month pre-tax was the former salary i was making before I left, which nets out to $180,000 a year, which is like a, a great salary for any any marketer of any industry. And 15K a month is three 
you know, demand gen operational consulting clients at 5k a month, which is very doable. Like I, I have that many, I obviously have more stuff going on, but that part is very doable. And when I had three clients, I wasn't working 40 hours a week either. So I think the unemployment part you mentioned is, is tricky of like, if you make some income, then it just equals you to where you are now. But then that one client lets you get a second and a third, and then you're diversified. If you lose one, you know, you still got two clients or if you lose two, you still have a couple. And so like, I'm a big fan of diversifying your income that way. And what freelancing, consulting, fractional work lets you A lot of companies should do that too. They need to, a lot of companies need to diversify clients so that one, losing one client doesn't mean you have to lay off all your employees. Uh, Totally. Well, (laughs) I mean, I I was, I was at Loom. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. Like when I was at Loom, and, you know, they went through two rounds of reduction in forces or restructurings or whatever they wanted to call it. Like what they were saying internally is like, look, we need to extend our runway. We need to make our cash last longer. So mm-hmm. I did the same thing. I cut my, I survived a layoff, but I cut my expenses, boosted my savings account to, you know, extend my personal runway as as well, which I think is, you know, wise for anyone in any kind of situation to do in case you find yourself laid off. But yeah, companies, uh, yeah, have a lot of work to do to make it to make it better for everyone. So what does your day look like now compared to peak startup world or peak corporate world for you? Yeah, I'm in a lot less meetings. I have a lot more time for myself. I am in more control over my schedule, but not fully in control because I could get a Slack message from my client of like, hey, something's on fire or can we meet really quick to discuss this thing? Or last week, one of my clients uh, decided last minute that they wanted me to help them interview for a new marketer role that they're hiring for. So I had to scramble to open up time to interview four people, which takes mm-hmm. which takes a lot of, of time. And the honest answer is I'm working more now, like more total hours now than I ever have in my career so far. And before I would find it hard to work at nights and on the weekends, I just couldn't get it up for lack of a better (laughs) to spend the time for uh, someone else's company. But then now that it's mine and I'm serving my clients, I find that much more rewarding. And all the newsletters I write, I write Sunday nights, Sunday mornings at a coffee shop. And I enjoy that. So it's like, there's more ownership in my day, but my weeks can be variable depending on client work. Like I have been slammed this month of all of my clients wanting to launch ads and get more pipeline in the door before the fiscal year ends for them. And that's created a lot of work for me, but not every week or not every month has been like that. So it can be really, really, really variable too. Yeah, that's what I hear from a lot of people. It's like when it rains, it pours, but then it could be, you know, the the drought. So that's what I hear from a lot of the, the freelancers. But are you you seem to be making a consistent amount? Your your goal was was twenty k a month, right? And then you moved yeah. to thirty k, and I don't know what your goals are now. <laughs> I don't know what, the, what I don't know what they are either. Like what I what I tell people is I would like to make the same amount, but with less hours. So more mm-hmm. passive income, more courses, more products, less trading my time for money, basically. Um, but yeah, like I, I feel like I'm consistently I have one too many clients, like I'm slightly over employed, which one is a risk reducing kind of skill a little mm-hmm. bit of like, if I lose a couple clients, like I'm still super good, well above my target. But it also means when 
it rains, it really pours with client work and I've been really, really busy. So it's give and take of like, and like I save almost all of my income. Like you see me making like 30K a month, think I'm out like buying a G-Wagon or a Ferrari or whatever. It's like, nah, <laughs> man, like it's going in the bank. Like I'm sitting mm-hmm. on this for a bit. And like in case it dries up next year, I want I want to be good. And so there's no, there's no frivolous fun spending going on over here. Let's get into the early exit club. And I, I'm going to steal, steal a thunder a little bit by saying, so what, what you're doing there is a, a bit different because you see a, um, on LinkedIn specifically, you, you see a lot of people building their company or building their marketing brand in, in public. But typically it's like, oh, these are the tactics we're trying. Or here was the first few ding- things I did as, as VP. But you're you're literally sharing the dollars. So one, let's let's go into just like if you had to give a, a quick summary on it. But my real question is like, why was that so important to you to to share all that stuff and be so transparent? The newsletter, the early exit club is the newsletter I wish I had when I was considering quitting my job. I wanted someone relatable, not a Justin Welsh who's pulling in like six figures, seven figures a month or whatever he is to follow and relate to of like, okay, this person is like me. They're a, you know, mid to senior level marketer, you know, however you want to slice it. They uh, used to work a corporate nine to five and now they don't. Now they have other income streams. And what does that look like? How much money do they make on each income stream? Do they consult? Is it affiliate? Is it newsletter? Like how do they do all of that stuff? And that's what really motivated me. So initially the early exit club, I built it as a community for current and aspiring solopreneurs to just find other connection and like build meaningful relationships with other people who are interested or going through the same like life journey as them. And it'll again, kind of pivot slightly into just focusing on marketers because I have journalists that follow me and engineers that follow me and I love them, but they're not the core audience I can best serve. So a little like repositioning is is required. But yeah, it's a way for me to share my story and demystify solopreneurship, what working for yourself is like, because it's scary, man. Like you have to, mm-hmm. you know this now, you have to buy your own health insurance. You have to like, you're your own business. You do bookkeeping, you do taxes. You have to, you know, while also serving clients and living a life that you find personally fulfilling too. So I wanted can to- we, Can we just talk about how expensive marketplace health insurance is? That's insane. Dude, I just renewed for next year and the same plan went up a hundred bucks a month and like it's shitty it's not good insurance it's the worst insurance i've ever had in my life but uh, you know here we are we're a third world country like like we don't have health insurance we have health insurance tied to employment like what the fuck i talk to people in canada and none of this stuff bothers them like their kid Mm -hmm. swallows a, a screw you go to the hospital, you get it taken care of, costs like zero dollars or like 20 bucks, you know? Like in the US, it'd be catastrophic if you were self-employed and your child did something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it blows my mind. And the myth people like, I get into like one political rant, uh, at least an episode. And, but the myth people like to say on the other side is, well, like you have long wait lines and other times in in canada because of this so one they've done studies and like no it's it could be long you know you have to wait but it's it's not much longer um two waiting for a doctor's appointment here is 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 the same fucking thing it's long as (laughs) yeah no and like it's if that's even if you can find a doctor in your network in Mm -hmm. in your city you know like it's that's a whole thing too that doesn't really exist is like in and out of network stuff too like i'd gladly wait 
if I was sick uh, just to see someone to not have to pay a thousand dollars a month on health insurance. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I would. I'll take that trade off any day. Yeah, and so like that—that's one of the things. Like, it, like, like the a full time job. You have that. You have that safety. You have that, but you can tax deduct the the health insurance at the end of the year. Yep. I think. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And there's like other stuff you can do, like you know, doing an S corp. Like it's funny when you. I just transitioned from being a sole prop to an LLC, and I went from being a person in the government's eyes to being a corporation. And suddenly, I have all these benefits. Like corporations mm-hmm. get treated better. You know, like I could deduct things. I could do all of this stuff that rich people do that normal people can't. And it's amazing how how that transition works. But the, the one thing I will say about self-employment and health insurance is stuff is that when you're at a full-time job, you're also at the mercy of your manager and the person that runs that company. Like they pick your benefits. They decide Mm -hmm. how many, how much paid time off you have and they decide your salary band. My salary band is uncapped right now. Like I can earn as much as I want to by finding new clients, increasing prices. So like there's more risk on the self-employed person but you have way more dials to turn to like grow and do creative things too. Well, it's time for Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right. This is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and it's going to get juicy. So welcome to Spill the Tea. Not that we weren't before, but when you were talking before and we were DMing, and you've said this to me, and this is pretty much, I've heard this from every fractional or consultant person, and it's don't do hourly. Every person has said that that I that I've talked to who's who's doing that. Tell our listeners why. Why hourly sucks. There's a lot of reasons why hourly is bad. I think in our DM, I was like, I could write a manifesto about why <laughs> why hourly is is bad. And I wish I had written it before this so I could just like regurgitate all of my all no, of my speak from points. the the horror. That's that's what we do <laughs> yeah. here. Okay, so hourly. Wanted to pay in the ass. You have to track your time and you track it down to the minute, the 10 minute blocks, 15 minute blocks. Like I think you should track it down to the hour. Like if I work for a client, they ask me to do mm-hmm. a task, boom, that's that's an hour of my time. I'm not gonna build them for like two minutes of, of work. And so that math equation is just also really bad. It disincentivizes you to take time off of if you don't work you can't bill any hours. And sometimes, yeah, you can put in pre-work before your vacation. You can bill more the week before, but sometimes your clients would put a cap on the amount of billable hours that you're allowed to bill too, which you know is another thing. And then every hourly client you get, and one of the first consultants I ever met told me this is it's just a part-time job. Like it's very hard to stack revenue and grow a meaningful business when you're just billing by the hour. And so like I only have one client where I bill by the hour. It's literally my first client ever I've I ever had this year. And next year I'm going to transition them away from hourly billing to just getting equity in their business instead and move to a more advisory model, but I think hourly is the wrong way to start and to grow a consulting business and you can't hit 30k a month billing hourly unless you're charging like a thousand dollars in an hour and then what it what also happens is the the longer you consult the more you work for your clients you get better at those tasks you get faster at doing reporting you build automations for them that they didn't have a couple of months ago and you don't get rewarded for that 
because a task that used to take you two hours now takes you maybe 10 minutes. So congratulations. Now you have to, now you build 10 minutes for that. Whereas if you're a retainer, <laughs> now it's like you get time back to go find a new client or to just relax and live your life or go on vacation or whatever. So it's like retainers or, or project-based work is strictly better than, than hourly. And I will die on this hill. I mean, I think most people agree, like literally, so, you know, I spent a good chunk of my career in agency life. Like that was just like the bane of my existence. It's like tracking time, switching between clients. And then it's like, to your point, it's like, yeah, we had, we, fr we had a lot of hours in the beginning because we were onboarding, training, setting up attribution, setting up ad tracking. Yeah, we're still doing stuff and making changes, but we're like in, in optimization and, and reaction mode and other stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, time tracking is, is just, it's annoying to do. And then, you know, looking at the reports and then going further and further and further. So, yeah, but you mentioned equity and or you're saying you would, you would work and you are, you are working or would work for just equity with a company. Both. One of my clients, um, this, so this is part of our negotiation is like I, their early stage company, I quoted them a high hourly rate, like around $300 an hour, which is, was of the market rate for my services at the beginning of the year. And it's now no longer the market rate is in my market rate is, is higher than that. And they're like, Hey, that's too high. Uh, can we negotiate? And I was like, sure. If you give me equity in exchange for the difference. And also I don't value equity one-to-one -to, -one to cash because your company is new and small and early stage and you could fail. So I want 2X, I want 3X the value of cash and equity. And I'm getting that now. And I've successfully used that playbook to negotiate with other people. Well, to push back on people who try to negotiate my rates. I don't negotiate my rates anymore because you look at my revenue numbers, like I don't need you, you need me. Right. So I definitely am from a, from a position of strength. But yes, if you have the cash, to live your life, then one option for consultants is to take a mix of cash and equity um, in ex to kind of like buy a, to get a lottery ticket in case they exit. Yeah. So like this is this is where like my like so I mean I've always been like equity is nice, but like 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 who gives a shit? I feel like most of the time it's like like yeah everything's made up and the points don't matter. Like sure you can have this price for the shares and here you know what let's throw in some five k more shares. Um, and like, yeah, like I'm sure that, I mean, there are many cases where this works out for people, but I feel like with a lot of series A's and B's and C's as well, um, it's like, well, it's not going to go anywhere. So how do you, how do you pick which ones you actually think is, is like worth your equity? Yeah. Like, I don't know the exact stat. It's somewhere of like this, I think Carta has a good stat of like at what stage of company is like what are the failure rates of each startup at each stage? And like the later stage you get, the the lower failure rate is, but it's still like 90% series A or something like that. So like most of these companies won't won't make it. And to that I say, okay, like that's that's the risk I'm I'm taking too. And it's also why I ask for more equity than the cash equivalent. Um, I am fortunate in that I the three of the four companies I work for so far have been have been acquired. And so I've only made money from one of those for like a lot of reasons like we we can we can get into. Um, <laughs> but like I believe that startup equity is 
a ticket to wealth. And what's nice about consulting is like I can pocket a lot of these lottery tickets and most uh, advisory equity engagements don't have a, uh, a cliff on them. So as soon as I sign that agreement, I vest equity that month and then it, it continues to vest every month. And so there's no wasted time in a sense. But I have talked to another consultant earlier this year that said all of the all the startups that she they worked for last year and got equity for are completely underwater right now like they've lost money on on that mm-hmm. stuff and so it it can go it can go both ways for sure okay so that's just your scratchy lottery tickets exactly and some of this is recency bias like i worked at loom they were just acquired for a billion dollars so i'm like mm-hmm, let's go mm-hmm. you know like let's let's stack more of these but the reality is like that was a lucky acquisition for everyone involved the employees shareholders investors whatever and it doesn't happen often yeah yeah so uh shifting gears i saw you want to move to new york city that's that's your can i can can i convince you otherwise like why do you want to move to new york city (laughs) Uh, for context i live in new york a little outside the city Okay. Um, so there's a few reasons. Uh, my wife and I, our best friend lives in Brooklyn and we want to live as close to him as possible just to spend as much time together. So that's like step one. Step two is we live in Texas and Texas is a shitty place for a lot of reasons, uh, (laughs) for women, for, uh, people who, who are like non-heteronormative and any, but we need to keep you there so you can, you can vote and change it for us. I, I, I have, I've been, I've been voting. I've been, I've been trying and ultimately have to like prioritize my like overall like just well-being um to move and like i've lived in the suburbs my whole life i'm tired of driving i want to walk everywhere and take the subway and like i've been to new york a bunch like i get the pros and cons my rent i have a mortgage now but like my mortgage is gonna almost quadruple to to the the rent i'll be paying and all of that stuff or trade-offs i'm willing to make to get out of texas and that says a lot i think about the current state of this place yeah i mean also like brooklyn's brooklyn's a bit better than like the other boroughs but like you're you're bang for your buck just like shrinks like when you're in the city so i mean that that's the thing a lot of people just don't don't realize and then a lot of things too it's like it's like times you've been to times square right like it's amazing the first few times you come there but then you're like oh my god get out of my way so it's something i just caution people like i'm the person so like i i live pretty close to the city i like being near the city but not living in the city because i can leave yep. the city i haven't been to the city in, in a while actually i used to work in the city I used to commute there um oh, cool but like it's just there's a lot less urine in in and <laughs> not the city <laughs> where you are yeah that that that's we're kind of looking at like the park slope area of brooklyn like okay. really close to yeah. prospect park so like quiet a lot of strollers, a lot of parents. So that's kind of like our vibe too, is we're, we're quieter, we're chill, like close enough to get to the city if we want to like go to Lower East Side or like hang out and stuff. But like, I can't be in, in Manhattan. It's it's too loud and I'm hoping Park Slope is like mm-hmm. a nice thing. But it's also like an experiment. Like part of why we're doing it now is because I make a shit ton of money and like I want to take this opportunity in my life to take a risk and take a chance and try something difficult and like who knows if all this goes away you know like i want to at least like take a swing and say i did it 
Okay, so that was just my... I, I had to just give you that sage wisdom <laughs> about New York City. And again, I'm gonna... Maybe I'll get hate about this, but, like... I mean, I'm a New Yorker, but, like, that's just my take on <laughs> living in this city. Um, also, get used to rats. So, uh, dude, I have not seen a rat. I've been to New York four times. Rats are on my bingo card of, like, I, I want to see a rat to, Have like, you taken the subway? Yeah, a ton. And You'll I see a rat. Never, You'll see a rat. I know. I'm surprised I haven't seen one, and I'm excited for it. I, I can't wait to see my first one, and then immediately after that will not be fun anymore. Yeah, but, just, like, the first one's going to be Look at the notable. tracks on the subway, and you'll see some there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so going back to some marketing stuff. So I, I am curious. When I say that this is overhyped in growth marketing, what is the first thing you think of? What is overhyped in growth marketing is the new distinction between like among demand generation professionals and like gated gated content. Like I have advised clients and seen clients who are still crushing it with with gated content. So I think like mm -hmm. there's every marketing play has its own merits within the like growth marketing ecosystem. But like I saw the Chris Walker, Refine Labs, Dark Social movement kind of start um, a couple of years ago. And I think it's kind of come back to earth a little bit of uh, that demand generation, demand capture, you know, dark social thing. And I, I think that while was a good channel is now also being oversaturated and over overplayed too, as someone who I have clients that are generating leads via ebooks and gated content. I have other clients that are all in on like, organic thought leadership how'd you hear about us questions on the forum tying it all back together in podcasts and stuff and i think everything everything has has value but yeah demand generation was uh the changes to demand gen i say over the i'm last glad you years. say that because like i feel like people who say gated content like doesn't work are like people or like who or people who are against gated content are people who are not responsible for any lead targets revenue targets or pipeline and i shouldn't blanket say it but it's like no like we need gated content to get an email address top of funnel still exists it's very important because believe it or not people would rather learn something that helps them than learn something about your product so when people yeah. shit on ebooks they're really shitting on shitty ebooks that aren't good ebooks <laughs> yeah Exactly. It's really easy to have like shitty ebooks as like the punching bag for what's wrong with demand generation today. And it, it's true that as marketers, like we we ruin a, a lot of things. Like we take things that are good and pure and corrupt them because we're held to revenue targets and sign up targets. And like I need to squeeze out every last little bit because my bonus is tied to hitting my revenue target. Me getting a promotion so I can save for a down payment for a house is tied to me hitting these, mm -hmm. these targets. So hell yeah, I'll do whatever it takes to hit the number you know um but i feel like the seasoned wise uh demand generation practitioners now see value in a lot of these playbooks regardless of if they're hot or not uh and know when to apply each one to me lead capture the rule or gated content the rules are very simple if it is something that helps you sell your well i mean I shouldn't, but if it's something that's specifically helping you sell your brand or company like a case study or something like that you want people to see that you don't you don't need them to download something you you want people to see that so case studies stuff like that that help you sell your stuff don't get that 
ebooks, white papers, if they actually are value adds or just something in general that your target market is interested in, absolutely gate that. Just don't ask for their mother's maiden name. Just get their email, maybe their first name if you want, enrich yeah. the rest if you need to. Yeah. And, and then, you know, don't put those people in the same email outreach sequence that you do for contact sales. Like those are different people who are not ready to buy from you. They just want to learn. They want to learn something. And that's a mistake I see a lot of, a lot of people make and them not repurposing that ebook mm-hmm. that you spent 20 hours and $2,000 on a writer and an illustrator to make really nice. Like that's great content you can use elsewhere. And um, companies don't do enough with, with repurposing too. Uh, yeah, that's that's my soapbox. I'm also a big fan of like ungating a portion of the content. So like, have have some of the good info. Give some some of the stuff away in a blog post. Get the SEO part there, but then have like the real meat or the hook be like, no, you have to download the thing now. So I'm a big fan of yeah. that. Yeah, I've, I've seen that work too. Mm-hmm. So we haven't mentioned ABM at all, but. Typically, when people say demand gen, uh, they 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 mean ABM because that's just yeah. what, what things have happened. Tell our listeners what's ABM versus demand gen in your opinion. Yeah, to me, like ABM is demand gen on a focused list of target accounts. Like it's demand gen pointed in a specific direction. And I've seen ABM go wrong when it's the sales team that puts together the ABM list is often sometimes not the best people that we should be going after or people who aren't showing the right current intent signals other other places in the market either according to like g2 or whatever or that like customers are telling us of like oh you know we're closing a ton of deals in e-commerce so like why are we not you know building an abm list with like other e-com retailers or whatever right and, uh, I've, I've been led astray by like sales created <laughs> abm mm-hmm. lists in, in the past but um yeah that's that's like my definition is like demand gen towards a target account list that like someone defines yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a perfect way to to phrase that. I uh, no, a- ABM is a tactic. It's it's a way of incorporating things. So one thing I, that I, I saw you you have in your your copy your website is you wanted to help people build community, but in a non guru way. And I know exactly what you mean by that. Uh, so I'd love for you to explain what that means for you, and then how how you do that. So I feel like I have to caveat a lot of my content with this, like, I'm not a guru. I don't have any courses or shit to to sell you because the language I use is very similar to what people have been misled by gurus in the past of mm-hmm. you can work for yourself. You could be your own boss. You could make 10K a month. And like, I read that and just cringe. I'm like, I say all the same stuff. Like, that's what I say. And so like, I feel like I really have to caveat a lot of that stuff because my intention with all the content, the newsletter, the LinkedIn, all that stuff is uh, I don't want people's money. Like, I just want to help people and say a genuine like altruistic play from my standpoint of like I get more joy from hopping on a call with someone making a connection with them maybe introducing them to a potential freelancing client down the road and like that's the win for me like the win isn't 
500 more dollars in my pocket. Like I don't want to extract money from my audience. Like my consulting clients more than pay for this when they're series B, series C clients with 200 million in funding, like they can pay for the content I put out and I just authentically want to help other people. And I feel like I have to caveat it sometimes because of the the language I use to promote myself. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the intention behind it, um, what the course actually covers, I think part of it's like, you know, people have just been jaded by the like, oh, well, like this person, it's like the, I'll call it the Trump, like, you know, selling these courses and then no. But to me, I feel like if you're actually in marketing, like you can kind of identify like who's who's the BS or it's kind of like, well, like if this person really made a thousand dollars or ten million dollars every two seconds, they wouldn't be creating a course to sell you. Uh, so like there, there's a lot of stuff like that you can look out for. I think the other two is not to criticize or anyone who's always been freelance, but like a lot of times it, when you see somebody who's been at agencies or startups um, in different marketing roles and then went out, there is there was a big difference between someone who might not have had as many experiences before. Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that's exactly it for me. It comes down to intention and just wanting to be authentic. Like my blog is just it, my, my name.com. And it's always mm-hmm. been that way because I wanted to back up everything I write with my name, my career history, my, my background, because that authenticity I think is so important. And I think we're just at the beginning of like the authentic personal brand marketer, you know, who will like go and grow on their own outside of kind of like companies or what nine to five they they have. And I think there's so much value in building an authentic brand. And that is worth so much more to me than me selling you a course for a thousand dollars and like disappearing the next day. So that's my perspective. Yeah, I love that. One thing I definitely want to hit on spilling the tea on marketplaces for freelancers, because we were talking about that. I, I, I've used, I've been a freelancer on Upwork. I, I've had a lot of fun there. I met some cool people, got a hundred percent success rate, but it's, it's like a different, it's a different breed of, of work. I was really using it more like extra cash on the side, like my fun stuff or yeah. to save. I wasn't really using it to, you know, be my main source. So this goes to what you're saying about hourly rates and, and stuff like, and the competition. but. Talk a bit about why people going out should should maybe avoid some of these marketplaces. Yeah, and and this I think this is what I said to you in in the initial like DM exchange that that we had. But if you're going to work for yourself full time, like avoid avoid Upwork, Fiverr, like the plague because it's a race to the bottom on prices. It's a race to the bottom on quality, and your personal brand and your unique value propositions don't stand out. And you could be like, I'm sure there are people who are just as skilled as me on Upwork charging 50 bucks an hour, a hundred bucks an hour. And that's where they're finding all their client work. And if that works for them, great. You know, that's, that's awesome. But when you can be more in charge of your personal brand, you can be more in charge of an, an audience you've owned or grown over a couple of years, you've built a pool of people who are paying for you and not the service you provide. And so then mm-hmm. that lets you charge infinitely more than you could on Upwork if you're competing with a bunch of people who all charge 50 bucks an hour to run your, your Google ads right. campaigns. And so I, th- I think that's the way like 
your approach was great, you know, like fun income on the side, nice to meet other other clients too. And I think your time is also very well spent on LinkedIn or Twitter or TikTok or whatever, making your own audience where you can dictate your own rates and style of working and, and all of all of that stuff together. So I tend to tell people to avoid Upwork and Fiverr if you're if you're kind of like just starting out fully all in on on consulting but there's um there's benefits to it too if used in moderation i guess yeah i I think you also like it's not necessarily the first like if you're trying to make freelancing your 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 main thing like being on upwork might depress you really quickly (laughs) just because of how like you know it's a marketplace you're bidding and like people you know view view you they view you a bit differently it's like freelancer and you know, you're competing with people in all different places. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a different, a different thing. But to wrap on a more positive note, what would be your number one tip? Meaning that if if people take nothing out of this interview except for this one thing, what would be your top tip for somebody going out on their own? Yeah, everyone listening, and you included too, has the skills necessary today to start freelancing to build a service-based business, you have knowledge that somebody else doesn't and they are willing to pay for it. All you need to do is go find that person or better yet, have that person come to you. And that's why I so believe in building an audience, posting on LinkedIn and doing it consistently because that is the best way to build a portfolio of prospective people who would love to pay you for your your expertise like you don't need to wait for some milestone you don't need to wait until you hit your next like vesting schedule or your bonus or there's, there's always something else out there of oh i should wait until i do this or i should wait until next year like the right time is now like if you want to start freelancing or building a consulting practice or just making enough money to cover your car payment or your student loans or your rent you have everything you need right now in your brain to get started. You just have to find someone that is willing to pay for it. And I promise you they're out there. It's just figure out what your offer is. Put yourself out there on LinkedIn, on a blog, on a podcast or whatever, and just try and just do and like you can 100% do it. I, I love it. I th- I, lo- I love what you're putting out there. I think one, you're you're doing great work, but you're you're putting meaningful content out there for for other marketers, and I think that's just really important. So before we wrap, I like to give the guests time to shout it out. Definitely want to call out your newsletter again, where people can subscribe, uh, your websites, and just anything else you want to call out. Amazing. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on, Lee. If this was interesting to anyone following me, find me on LinkedIn, search for Nick Lafferty, um, go to my website, earlyexit.club, where you can subscribe to my newsletter. It's 100% free. And then going into next year, they there may or may not be a community for aspiring marketing freelancers that happens where I can connect all the brilliant people who message me on LinkedIn. Like I got 15 DMs on LinkedIn after I posted my update today of like, oh, this is amazing. Congratulations. I'd love to talk to you. It happens all the time. And so I want to connect all of these people together and let them talk with each other. And that's probably coming next year. So stay tuned for that. 
Well, that sounds super awesome. I'm going to look out for that. Listeners, look out for that too. Nick, thank you so much for being here. There's so many great insights. Uh, I've learned a lot. Hope my marketing listeners and anyone else thinking about freelance learns a lot too. So Nick, thank you again so much. And I will see everybody for another episode of Lead to the Next Hub. Enjoying Lead to Be? Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Your reviews go a long way in supporting me. Thank you so much.